Bookshelf Podcast. This podcast is where we will be exploring Korean popular culture through books. I'm the host of this podcast, Amina, and I can't wait to talk about books with you. The book that we are taking down from the bookshelf today is the South Korean film Renaissance, Local Hitmakers, Global Provocateurs by Jin Yee Choi. This is our second episode in our How You Wave series, and today's book is covering the Korean film industry which has at times been kind of cringily referred to as Hollywood. In preparation for this episode, I watched a bunch of Korean films referenced in the book, so if you haven't watched the following films and you are sensitive to very mild spoilers, I suggest you stop the podcast here and go check them out. The movies I watched were Shiri, The Host, Old Boy, Memories of Murder, and My Sassy Girl. I will also be discussing the film Parasite, but if you haven't seen that yet, well, that's on you. This book was published in 2010, and it only covers films from the time period of 1986 through 2004. The author of the book, Dr. Jinhee Choi, has two PhDs, including one in film studies, and she is a professor at King's College London. It's a little bit challenging to read books about films because so much time in the book is spent hashing out scenes, character descriptions, and plot points. If you haven't watched the film that they're talking about in the book, it can be really difficult to follow what the book is talking about. But I just think that's the nature of film books. Due to this difficulty, I also consulted another book about Korean cinema. This one is called A Virtual Hallyu, Korean Cinema of the Global Era, and it's by Kyungyeon Kim. Kyungyeon Kim is a professor at the University of California, Irvine. His book has a foreword by famous U.S. director Martin Scorsese. Kyungyeon Kim has co-produced and co-scripted two award-winning feature films, Never Forever and The Housemaid. His book is very academic and scholarly, whereas Dr. Choi's book, while well-researched, is slightly less academic in its tone and a little bit easier to read if you're not a film connoisseur. Due to this, I didn't end up using the virtual Hallyu book a ton for this episode, but I wanted to give his book a shout out because it's a very worthy book for film buffs. So as I mentioned, Dr. Choi's book, The South Korean Film Renaissance, discusses the South Korean film industry between 1986 and 2006. The year 1986 is significant because Korean law was amended to allow distribution by major Hollywood studios of their movies in Korea. And if you're wondering, wait, did the Korean government really pass a bunch of laws about movies? Yes, as we are learning, so much of Korean popular culture came to us with the help of the Korean government. Dr. Choi says that at the end of the Korean War, the Korean film industry was negligible, producing fewer than 30 films a year. However, in the late 1950s, the industry began to grow. In 1962, MPL, the Motion Picture Law, was established with, quote, the aim of accelerating the industrialization of the Korean motion picture business, end quote. Remember, Korea was all about industrializing their country as quickly as possible because of the time of Japanese occupation and multiple wars made quick rebuilding of their country very necessary. So the book is called The Korean Film Renaissance, and Dr. Choi says that the first Korean film renaissance was in the 1960s. These movies aren't really discussed in detail in this book because it's not within the time periods covered, but from what I've read elsewhere, they often included themes of melodrama and social issues. The Korean film industry boomed in an area of Seoul called Cheongmuro. Cheongmuro had over 70 film companies in the area. In the 1960s, Korea was under the Park Chongyi dictatorship, which ushered new regulations for film, including censorship to, quote, defend public morals and social ethics, according to the amendment. 
Under these regulations, the number of film companies decreased and the number of foreign movies allowed to be imported to Korea was restricted using a quota system. Basically, the point of the quota system was to ensure that profits made from the import of foreign films, for example, Hollywood movies, would be reinvested into the production of domestic films in Korea. Film companies would not earn the right to import any foreign films, which was a huge moneymaker for companies, unless they produced a certain number of domestic films. Since studios were just chasing money, they would end up making low-budget movies very quickly just to fulfill that production quota and then spend the money to import and distribute more foreign films. So it's sort of a self-defeating cycle in that it wasn't very efficient in manufacturing high-quality Korean films. Dr. Choi writes, quote, With the country's rapid economic growth in the 1970s and 1980s, the Korean government was under pressure to liberalize its import policies and financial markets for all industries, including film, end quote. During negotiations of a fair trade agreement with the U.S., the U.S. government asked the Korean government to deregulate the film laws and get rid of the quota system so that Hollywood films could take a bigger share of the Korean film market. In 2006, the South Korean government did end up reducing the screen quota. The screen quota was a quota mandating that for a certain number of days in the year, Korean movie theaters had to screen domestically produced Korean films. As part of the 2006 fair trade agreement with the U.S., the screen quota in Korea was reduced to 73 days, which halved the previous screen quota for South Korean films. However, it didn't actually meet the U.S. demands to give up the quota system entirely. Still, there were protests about this by people who worked in the Korean film industry for months. A Han Kyore article published during the protests and fair trade agreement negotiations stated, quote, If the government accepts the U.S. proposals, it is tantamount to a negation of the government's pledge to protect the local film sector, an industry official said. The official said this was true, especially when we are moving into a digital era. It is like scrapping the whole screen quota system, end quote. Later, after the Korean film renaissance was really underway, the development of pirating technology caused a decline in the number of moviegoers in Korea for the first time. This was because, thanks to the widespread availability of internet in Korea in the 2000s, people were illegally downloading movies, as well as music, in large numbers. The number of movie theater admissions in Korea went down for the first time in a decade in the year 2007. In 2008, the government helped bail out the film industry by cracking down on online piracy and arresting people who were making these illegal downloads available. So, quick recap. Korean government implemented a quota system for imports and for screen time of foreign films, including Hollywood films, in the past. Revenue generated from imported films was supposed to support the Korean film industry by being reinvested in domestic films. However, after the quotas were lifted, quote, production companies no longer owned exclusive rights to imports as they used to, and they were unable to bargain with local distributors and exhibitors, end quote. Therefore, they had to find alternative ways to finance domestic films. Starting in the late 1980s, the U.S. was allowed by the Korean government to directly distribute their own films in Korea. This resulted in a loss of revenue for the production companies who were previously earning the right to distribute foreign films and reinvesting those earnings into producing local films. Therefore, conglomerates and venture capital firms were used to finance Korean film. Some conglomerates, or chebols, that invested early in the Korean film industry included companies such as Daewoo, Samsung, and Hyundai. In 1996, Korea's largest food manufacturer, the Chebol company Cheol Chejang Corporation, established CJ Entertainment, a film production company who invested in the company DreamWorks in 1995 to have the right to distribute DreamWorks films in Korea. 
You may remember back in 2020 when Parasite had just won the Academy Award and this lady who was not part of the cast came up to give a speech. That was CJ Group Vice Chairwoman Lee Mikyung, also known as Mickey Lee. She worked to produce and promote Parasite in the U.S., and she is also the granddaughter of the founder of Samsung. A quote in The Hollywood Reporter states, quote, It's difficult to find a link in the film, television, and music industry chains in which CJ isn't involved. The company has its fingers, or a whole hand, in production, financing, licensing, distribution, and even exhibition, end quote. The same article goes on to say, quote, In fact, it's possible to draw a direct line between CJ's investment in the local film industry and the rise of filmmakers like Bong, meaning that without Lee's support, Parasite might not even exist, end quote. The article also quotes Mickey Lee herself, quote, I used to carry DVDs and go to Warner's, Universal, Fox, anybody I had a chance with and pitch Korean film, Korean film, Korean film. No one thought Korean films were good enough to do anything with, Lee says of the years before a crucial turning point, Park Chanuk's Old Boy taking the Grand Prix in Cannes in 2004. From then on, I didn't have to go into this long justification anymore, end quote. I'm going to link in my blog this article from The Hollywood Reporter, which profiles her and also links some video of her because she's kind of really fascinating and has led an interesting life. Some of the investment by Chebols were scaled down during the 1997 IMF crisis. After this, venture capital firms began investing in the film industry. The reason venture capitalists got involved is because as a result of the financial crisis in 1997, venture capital firms had to redirect their investments from an unstable stock market and high exchange rates to something else. Chibbles and venture capital firms required high levels of financial transparency and a standardization of film production in Korea. However, because of this standardization, production costs were higher, and therefore South Korean films at the time were really focused on commercial success, according to Dr. Choi. A generation of film directors who were responsible for the next film renaissance is the 386 generation. The term 386 refers to the speed of an Intel computer chip that was coined in the early 90s. Although originally it was not a term limited to film directors, Dr. Choi says it, quote, has been appropriated by the South Korean media to designate a generation in their 30s when the term began to circulate, whose members were born in the 1960s and attended college in the 1980s, end quote. She goes on to say, quote, there is an overlap between the 386 generation and South Korean baby boomers who were born between 1955 and 1963, though baby boomers is a less culturally specific demographic term in the Korean context, end quote. The whole reason that the 386 generation has a designation at all is because people of this generation were in college or of college age during the 1980s where there was much political turmoil happening in Korea. During the Shoko Smile episodes of this podcast, we discussed student protests against military dictatorships in the 80s. Just a quick refresher, students were protesting the military regime of Chon Doo-hwan, the military dictator of Korea at the time. During these protests, the military killed, quote, hundreds of innocent civilians and students, end quote, during the Gwangju massacre in 1980. Dr. Choi states that there were some anti-U.S. sentiment during this time, since the U.S. government recognized the legitimacy of the Chun dictatorship, whereas the protesters had wanted democratically elected leadership. This is what was going on during many of the 386 generation's formative young adult years. And though, according to Dr. Choi, most of these directors did not directly get involved in political activism, the influence of this time can be seen in some of their films. 
As a result of the government's focus on quickly industrializing the nation and making Korea a major exporter, Korea the country, as well as average Koreans, became a lot richer. Dr. Choi states that, quote, disposable income doubled between 1986 and 1988, and actual consumption increased 8.7% during that period, end quote. So now Koreans had money to burn at the movie theater or on other cultural things. I mentioned that Korean directors were influenced somewhat by their own history, and they were also influenced by Hollywood films. However, there was another country that impacted South Korean film as well. South Korean directors were also influenced by the huge popularity of Hong Kong gangster movies. These movies became quite popular in Korea in the mid-80s and early 90s. They were so popular that Hong Kong film stars appeared in Korean television commercials. Hong Kong gangster movies influenced Korean gangster movies, which were known as gangpae. Censorship of 1980s Korean government prevented the emergence of Korean gangster movies during that time, but gangster movies also existed in Korea prior to the censorship. In the 1990s, there was a large number of Hong Kong imports. As I mentioned already, Hollywood films had the ability to self-distribute, but Korean distributors wanted their rights to foreign movies, and since they couldn't access those Hollywood films, Hong Kong action and gangster films were good alternatives, and they were within their reach. Dr. Choi says that the 2001 movie, Friend, was a Korean gangster movie that made this genre a big trend again. There's a school of thought among Korean film critics that the popularity of Korean gangster films was a result of the financial crisis in 1997. Dr. Choi writes, quote, It is claimed that such socioeconomic conditions contribute to social identity crises and anxiety in men, especially those in their teens and 20s. Violence in gangster films represents the frustrations of this younger generation. It is presented as an alternative route to making money and climbing the social ladder, end quote. This little piece that Dr. Choi wrote reminded me a lot of the anti-feminist movements that are currently going on in Korea, where some men feel threatened by the high cost of living in Korea and the burdens of military service and the pursuit of higher education. There was sort of a subgenre of gangster films that Korea had, which was called gangster comedy movies. These were sort of parodies of gangster movies. I'm not going to really get into it here, but it's talked about in the book. Dr. Choi says, quote, The rising stardom of South Korean actors such as Bae Yong-jun, Choi Ji-woo, Lee Byung-hun, and Jang Dong-gun has further helped the Korean industry sell distribution rights to neighboring countries, as their fan base demands the simultaneous release of their films across the region, end quote. Which brings us to Japan. In the quote I just mentioned, one of the actors listed was Bae Yong-jun. If you listen to the Pop City episode of the podcast, then you may remember him as the megastar from the K-drama Winter Sonata, who Japanese fans referred to as Yon-sama. Much like with K-dramas from the same time, Japan was the biggest buyer of Korean cinema in the early 2000s. With regards to Korean stars famous in Japan, like Bae Yong-jun, film companies could use them as a box office draw due to their wide recognition in those countries. Dr. Joy explains that import rights to films with these actors could be sold at the pre-production stage, so they were a huge help for financing films. Peyong Jun starred in the 2005 film April Snow, which was pre-sold for $7.5 million to Japan as well as other Asian countries. But to go back for a minute to the earlier days of the Korean film industry, I should point out that after Japanese occupation of the Korean peninsula, Japanese media was banned in Korea. In 1998, the Korean Ministry of Culture and Tourism lifted the ban on Japanese pop culture, but some people, especially those of the older generation who remember the occupation, still held resentment towards Japan and therefore avoided Japanese goods and products. 
In the Shoko Smile episodes, we talked at length about how the leaders during the Japanese occupation essentially attempted to erase Korean identity, along with the fact that Koreans were sent to do labor on behalf of Japan and work as the so-called comfort women for the Japanese military during World War II. But the younger generation who didn't live through the occupation embraced Japanese media, including manga, anime, TV, film, and music. And by 2004, Japanese films could be shown in Korea. Dr. Choi notes that, quote, Korean blockbuster Shiri became the first Korean film to earn a wide release in Japan, end quote. Shiri is a film directed by Kang Jae-gyu and was released in 1999. This was, according to Dr. Choi, the first Korean blockbuster, which grossed $26.5 million, but only cost less than $3 million to make. Dr. Choi notes that Korean blockbusters, which since Shiri have cost more, are still much smaller in budget than Hollywood blockbusters. She writes, quote, The success of Shiri was a cultural, economic, and industrial phenomenon, and it paved the way for the emergence of subsequent blockbusters, creating the so-called Shiri syndrome, end quote. Shiri is a film that is both like a Hollywood action movie and like a Hong Kong action movie. The story is that South Korean government agents are trying to track down a North Korean sniper who is a woman. Also, there's a suspected leak within the agency, and the two agents have to figure out who is leaking intelligence to North Korea. Also, there is a substance called CTX, which can be used as a bomb, and Korean intelligence officials have to try and stop these CTX bombs from going off all over Seoul, especially during a very important public event. This is an action movie with lots of high-speed chases, shootouts, and also a romance. There's also the element of a timeline where they have to save everyone before something terrible happens. There was a trend at this time for Korean blockbusters to rely on their history, so that led to many films being made about the North and South Korean divide at the 38th parallel. Another movie discussed in the book, but that I haven't watched yet, is called Joint Security Area, which came out the following year and was directed by Park Chanuk, the director of Old Boy. The Joint Security Area is the part of the border between North and South Korea where the two countries' militaries face each other. Shiri, likewise, has to do with North Korean espionage. Dr. Choi says that the reason Shiri was so popular is because, quote, when Shiri was released, audiences and the media alike raved that it is like a Hollywood movie, end quote. She also says that, quote, Shiri was an example of Korean cinema equaling Hollywood cinema, not only in spectacle and entertainment value, but also in storytelling, end quote. Dr. Choi goes into various plot points in the movie at length in the book to support this opinion. The next movie I'm going to discuss is The Host, directed by Bong Joon-ho, released in 2006. The Host had record-breaking box office success the same year that that screen quota was halved. So all those people protesting the reduction of the quota didn't need to worry, at least not yet. At the time of the writing of the book, The Host held the record for ticket sales in Korea. The Host is based on a true story of an American civilian at the U.S. military base in Seoul who dumped harmful chemicals down a drain, even though it would get into the Han River and therefore into the public drinking water supply. In the movie, after this event happens, the city of Seoul is then terrorized by a fish monster that jumps out of the Han River and swallows or kills people hanging out on the riverbank. Korean government officials and the U.S. military, which has a huge base in Seoul in real life, is trying to contain a virus at the same time. Yeah, that was an interesting movie to watch during the pandemic. The movie follows a single father who is somewhat immature and inept and trying to save his child from the monster. He's helped by his siblings and father, the child's grandfather. But will he save her? And is he infected with the virus? 
The movie's central disaster takes place on the Han River, and if you recall, economic policies to industrialize Korea and make them a more modern nation was called Miracle on the Han River. That's something that Kyungeon Kim pointed out in the Virtual Hallyu book. Dr. Choi writes, quote, Throughout the film, there are many allusions to the U.S. presence in Korea of interference with Korean social issues, end quote. Uh, yeah, I would say that the critique of the U.S. is more than just alluded to in the host, especially for viewers with knowledge of the U.S. military presence in Korea. Film critic Carolyn Hines published a piece where she discusses the reception of some Korean films in the U.S. She spoke to novelist and journalist Marie Myung-ok Lee about some of these films. Carolyn's piece quotes Maurice saying this about the host, quote, A lot of criticism of Western, specifically American, military occupation in Korea seems to go over people's heads. The host was an absolutely blistering critique of a real event of the U.S. military dumping formaldehyde into the Han River. But even with smaller things, there were references, like real references, not just gestures, in the host to things like how the U.S. used and experimented with biological warfare during the Korean War and also the Korean government's complicity with wanting and needing the U.S.'s aid during the war and beyond, and so they actually actively ignored atrocities, end quote. Remember, I mentioned that there was some resentment towards the U.S. among members of the 386 generation? Kyungyeon Kim, author of Virtual Hallyu, mentions, quote, The monster of the Han River is surely both the allegory and the emblem of loss, of both national sovereignty and clean water, end quote. The next film I'm discussing is Old Boy, directed by Park Chanuk, who directed many other landmark Korean films that were critically acclaimed abroad and in Korea. Old Boy is an adaptation of a Japanese manga. It's about a man locked by persons unknown to him and for reasons unknown to him in a room for 15 years, after which he is finally released. Upon his release, he is filled with rage and a thirst for revenge, hence the violence and gore that ensues. There's also sex and nudity in this film. This movie was so wild. This is the first time I've actually seen it, even though a lot of my film nerd friends from college used to talk about it all the time. And I read all these spoilers about it, but I was still super shocked when I watched it. I was just not prepared mentally or spiritually. So there's a scene of note where as the 15 years pass for the prisoner, a reel of images outlining important historical events that played out, including important political history of Korea during that time. And that goes back to Dr. Choi's point that Korean directors during this time focused on a lot of Korean history and reflected that in their films. Old Boy won Cannes Film Festival's Grand Prix Grand Prize in 2004. Park Chanuk's first breakthrough film, as I already said, was Joint Security Area, which was the second blockbuster film in Korea after Shiri. Old Boy was the second of the Vengeance trilogy, all directed by Park Chanuk, and all of which, according to Dr. Choi, were, quote, imbued with excessive violence and gory images, end quote. Dr. Choi describes it as being in the genre of well-made films, along with the memories of murder, which I also watched this week. Quote, both Korean well-made cinema and Hollywood independent films focus on themes, character relationships, and social relevance, themes that had long been associated with European art cinema, end quote. Old Boy was marketed by a UK distributor called Metro Tartan as Asian Extreme, which Dr. Choi says is, quote, a group of Asian films with slick visual style and excessive violence, end quote. Dr. Choi notes a trend of, quote, aesthetics of cruelty and violence, end quote. And not just in Korean films, but in other Asian films as well, such as Hong Kong action movies and Asian horror movies, such as Japan's The Ring and Battle Royale. Dr. Choi seems to say that this perception of Asian films transcended the language barriers for wider audiences. 
She writes, quote, Young audiences once reluctant to watch foreign films with subtitles are now drawn to the surreal renderings of hyperviolent imagery and gore, end quote. Film critic Carolyn Hines theorizes on the concept of marketing Asian films as violent to Hollywood. She writes, quote, North America, America in particular, has an obsession with glorifying the most violent content, content where the main protagonist is male and doesn't have a deeply political message or social critique, is especially popular amongst white men, end quote. I believe Quentin Tarantino is a huge fan of Old Boy, and if you watch Old Boy and then you watch literally any Tarantino movie, it, it kind of makes sense. The next movie I'm going to talk about is Memories of Murder, directed by Bong Joon-ho, director of The Host and of Parasite. This film is another example that Dr. Choi points out of a well-made film, meaning one that is like an indie or art house film in Korea. It's based on the true story of a serial killer who also sexually assaulted his victims in a small rural town in Korea in the 80s. A team of detectives work to solve the case. Like other movies directed by director Bong, there is a historical and political backdrop of Korean politics at the time. In this case, the student protests of the 1980s. It even directly impacts the plot at one point where fellow policemen aren't available at a crucial point in the case because they are out policing the student protesters. I'm not sure if that part of the film is based on real life, but it's woven into the plot. A sort of spoiler is that at the time that the movie was finished, the crime had not yet been solved. But in 2019, the killer of the real-life victims confessed to his crimes and was arrested. I will have an article about this in my blog if you're interested. Okay, so sort of as a palate cleanser now, I'm going to talk about the next film, My Sassy Girl. This is a 2001 rom-com directed by Kwok Jeong. And this rom-com really resonated a lot in Asia, with remakes of it having been produced in India and Thailand, and even remade within Korea as a Chosun-era drama. There was also a U.S. remake. The main girl character in the film does not have a name and is only referred to as she. She's an eccentric girl who dominates her boyfriend, goes around humiliating him and physically abusing him, but this is played for laughs in the film. The story was purportedly based on a true story that was published as a blog in the late 90s. Hey, remember blogs? Dr. Choi says, quote, Eccentric heroines in contemporary Korean romantic comedy can best be characterized in terms of their boyishness in both physique and personality. These heroines are lacking in signs of adult female sexuality, end quote. The character of she in My Sassy Girl is conventionally attractive, but in a way hides it under shapeless casual clothing. She acts somewhat unladylike by being loud, rude, very drunk in public, and bullying strangers if she thinks they're not acting right. I feel like this trope of eccentric girl is also often seen in K-dramas, or at least this trope of a non-feminine clumsy girl. I might cover more about that trope in some future episode. I'm not really sure yet, but it was a really interesting part of this book and probably makes the most sense if you've actually seen the movie. Regarding My Sassy Girl, Dr. Choi writes, quote, Despite their semi-sadomasochistic relationship, Gyonu, that's the male character, and her playfulness marks the couple as special, end quote. As much as I hate to admit this, the film does somehow make them both kind of endearing. Maybe that's just me falling easily for this trope. Also, I could be wrong, but it kind of reminds me of the manic pixie dream girl trope in Hollywood films. Film nerds, let me know if I'm right. Of course, although it's not within the scope of this book, I can't just not talk about Parasite. Parasite, released in 2019, was directed by Bong Joon-ho. It was the first non-English film to win the award for Best Picture at the Academy Awards in 2020. It also won a bunch of other Oscars and other festival film awards as well. 
I can't even properly or accurately describe the plot of Parasite because there are so many layers to it that anything I would say would just be inadequate. So if you watch nothing else, watch this if you haven't already. An article by So Ting Lee calls Parasite, quote, a new crest in the Korean wave, end quote. Lee also argues that the film is a way to spread soft power and nation branding by the Korean government. Lee also writes, quote, In media interviews, Parasite director Bong asserted that the Oscar Best Picture win would not have been possible without the long-running success of the Korean wave over the past 20 years or more. An article by Dr. Rebecca Chiyoko King Oreyan, I hope I pronounced that right, it's very Irish, points out something really important about Parasite and past government censorship of Korean films. She writes, quote, The strength of the film is probably best understood in terms of its connection to politics, capitalism, and popular culture in South Korea. Director Bong himself must be experiencing the film's success as a massive win over adversity. Along with over 9,000 others working in the arts in 2015, he was blacklisted and banned from all state funding and support for criticizing former president Gunny Park. As many will remember, Park was impeached in 2017 and is currently serving a 24-year prison sentence for crimes committed, including abuse of power and coercion for planning and executing the blacklist, end quote. Side note that President Gunny Park, or Park Gunny, is not imprisoned anymore. Actually, Dr. King O'Rain's article is a super interesting comparison between Korean culture and history and Irish culture and history. I've read so many think pieces over the years about Parasite, most of which were written from a U.S. perspective, so it was really interesting to read the Irish perspective. According to the article by Lee, quote, In 2019, CJENM, South Korea's largest entertainment company and a key financial backer of Parasite, entered into a strategic partnership with Netflix based on a multi-year content production and distribution agreement, end quote. And you all probably know by now that Parasite will be adapted into an American series because, of course, it will. Now, however, in our post-pandemic world, things aren't going as well for the Korean film industry as the outlook seemed like it would back in 2019. An article which covered a meeting at the Buchon International Fantastic Film Festival, also known as Baifan, quotes Shin Chul, the director of the festival, as saying, quote, In the past couple of years, it seems to have completely changed. We now see film production crew members going to work on drama series, and we stand and watch film shooting where it doesn't look much different from shooting a drama. So it's time we redefine the concept of cinema, end quote. Chairman of the Gyeonggi Film Commission, Lee Eun was quoted as saying, quote, In Korea, 2019 was a peak boom, with the country ranking about number four in film market size worldwide, but the bias structure was more extreme than ever, with the flip side of quantitative growth at its greatest in terms of leaning towards big budget production. End quote. As you may already be aware, although Korea is one of the countries faring the best in the pandemic, it is now experiencing a relative upswing in cases. Variety reports, quote, research firm S&P Global Market show that Korea was the only major market in East Asia not to see a box office recovery between January and April 2021, compared with the same four months of 2020 when the first waves of the virus were peaking, end quote. Film productions in Korea that were supposed to film abroad have shut down, and movie theaters in Korea are feeling the burn of much fewer tickets being sold. Many films that were scheduled to begin production have been put on hold for months. So, on that kind of sad note, in conclusion, I do recommend this book, The South Korean Film Renaissance, as well as Kyung Yeon Kim's book, Virtual Hallyu, if you are a major film aficionado. There are some very deep analyses in there and deep dives into so many films that film fans will totally love. Personally, I wish I had the time to watch every film listed in these books, but I'll just have to get to them eventually. I really do recommend all the movies that I talked about today, though. 
We'll be covering some more about the Holly Wave in other episodes this season, so make sure you don't miss out on those. Special thanks to AO for designing the blog. Special thanks to Carolyn Hines for helping me obtain her piece from Korean Film Magazine. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, please tell a friend about the podcast. Okay, thanks. Bye.